Where's their internal conflict? What are they torn about? Like, what are they worried about? And then you paraphrase it in the most elegant language you can muster, play it back to them. And then, this is the part I used to always forget, is you have to check to see if you got it right with genuine curiosity, right? So you have to be like, is that right? Um, and you get this kind of real momentum going where they're like, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And then they will listen to you, right? So it's like a game of chicken, like who's going to listen first? So I would recommend listening first. That was New York Times bestselling author and investigative journalist Amanda Ripley, my guest today on the Anonymous Third podcast. Imagine this, you're having a discussion with a friend around a local school board election, and what starts out just as a peaceful conversation deviates into personal attacks. You find yourself wondering, how do we get here? Now, we aren't even discussing the actual topic anymore. You feel angry, hurt, and are put in an uncomfortable spot with your friend. Man, I think we've all been here at some point in our life, and this is why I'm so excited to dive into a conversation with Amanda about this very thing, conflict. Amanda and I discuss her book, High Conflict, why we get trapped and how we get out. She gives me advice on how to keep our conversations productive versus late night news or reality TV. Amanda is so good at describing conflict from a productive and counterproductive standpoint. Not only do we discuss bad conflict and how to avoid it, but good conflict and how it's good for people who disagree with each other to be able to state their differences and advocate for their own interests. She provides valuable insights into conflicts which allows us to understand each other more fully. We also get into my favorite aspect of Amanda's book, stories from people she's interviewed, people drawn into fights that consume their lives, from a local politician to a gang leader on the south side of Chicago. Amanda has a meticulous thirst for scientific evidence that is rare in a book this entertaining, and it also gives credibility to the ideas described. But before we get into this podcast, don't forget about Go, the event of the year. We have a limited amount of tickets and I don't want you to miss out. Leave your conflict behind, get outside, and get ready to be inspired. Our event will be taking place in the Chicagoland area featuring Rich Roll, Jordan Burroughs, Cedric King, and more. These speakers are top athletes and have an incredible mindset and life story to share with you. You can find out more at notalmostthere.com forward slash go and use the discount code NAT2021 for a 10% discount. Okay, back to today's episode. Close your computer, get the episode on your phone, get outside, and let's learn how to deal with conflict. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Joe. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. It is so great to have you on the show today. Congratulations on all the books, your latest high conflicts. We're going to dive into a lot of it today. And then uh, before I forget, though, at the end of this, I need to touch on a few things from the smartest kids in the world, specifically because I'm a a parent and just I'm always looking at ways to um, be a better parent and to help uh, my children grow in every way possible. So there's, there's a couple nuggets in there that I want to get through. There's a lot, but I know we don't have a ton of time. So the definition of conflict and the way I think about conflict in my everyday life is kind of like this, this binary thing where I'm either in a conflict situation or I'm not. But the way you describe it is much different in that there are certain levels of conflict, hence the book High Conflict. It's, can you explain, can we level set first on the definitions of conflict and the different levels of them? Absolutely. So the kind of conflict you're in really matters, it turns out. And conflict itself is not the problem, right? 
Conflict is like stress. So you have to put your body under stress to get stronger, right? Conflict is how we get better as a community, as a family, as a person. That's how we defend ourselves. We push other people. We evolve, hopefully, right? Uh, It can be stressful and heated and unpleasant and uncomfortable, but conflict is not the problem. And I would call healthy conflict good conflict, right? Have you ever heard of the late Congressman John Lewis used to talk about good trouble, right? Which is necessary trouble to get into. And the same is true with good conflict. That's the kind where we get better. We push ourselves, we push each other. Then there's something I came to know of as high conflict. There's different words for this in academia. Some people call it intractable conflict. But the way I have come to understand it is it's, it's the kind of conflict that can start small, but it gradually takes on a life of its own. It's an us versus them feud, usually. And in high conflict, we behave differently than we do in good conflict. We tend to feel more and more certain of our own superiority and more and more baffled and ultimately disgusted by and contemptuous of our opponents, whoever that may be. And the behavior's the same, which is wild, like whether it's in politics or inner office disputes or warfare or divorce court, the human behavior in high conflict is very similar. And it becomes conflict for conflict's sake, if that makes sense. And in that state, we make more mistakes, we miss opportunities, We fight less effectively. There's a lot of research on this. And eventually, this is probably the most kind of heartbreaking part of it, eventually we start to mimic the behavior of our opponent without realizing it. So, And we start doing the thing (laughs) to some degree that we went into the fight to stop. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I see that it's very prevalent now in the... The news, which is kind of my next question to piggyback off that, doesn't conflict create curiosity? And then curiosity drives ratings. So how do we get out of a place where we can reduce high conflict if we tune in constantly to news headlines and to high conflict situations? Because that's what intrigues us. Right. I mean, it is true. Like, I've been a journalist for 20 years, and from the beginning, it was always, you were always taught you need characters, you need conflict. There's certain ingredients you need for a story to move, to work, right, to compel people to pay attention. And conflict is part of that, for sure. I think in, in this state of hyperpolarization that we're in as a country, the definition of conflict, including for journalists, gets really, really narrow, So there's a lot of ways to have conflict, right? (laughs) Like you can have a complication. You can have internal conflict. You can have a surprise, something that's counterintuitive, that that conflicts with what we expect, right? Those are great stories. And in, in high conflict, this kind of trap that we're currently in, you start to have the same kind of us versus them conflict over and over and over to the point where it's no longer interesting. Like, I I don't know if you feel this way, but I can scroll through the headlines on my phone, as I do, and I know what the story is going to say. Like, I don't actually have to read it about 85 to 90 percent of the time. That's not getting my attention. Right. Um, And so it's because it gets into this trap of 
you know, viewing everything through an adversarial lens. So yes, it's compelling, in, but it's like one note, the same note, usually fear or outrage over and over and over. So I actually think to your really hard question of how do we get out of this from a news media point of view, I actually think conflict, this narrow form of conflict has become cliche, like it's just boring. So there's a huge unmet demand for a more complicated, interesting version of conflict that's true, right? And actually more true, I would argue, because it's less oversimplified. So when, when we are in a high conflict situation, we're triggered by something that can cause us to react, which then can cause a downstream of conflict, of high conflict, what are, what are some things that you've seen or signals to be self-aware of when it comes to just knowing that you're, you're going down a path that isn't ideal? Yeah. So in this book, I actually included an appendix that has like a quiz so you can tell if you're in high conflict, <laughs> yeah. which I've never done. But I found that it's actually pretty easy to tell if you're in, if you're, approaching high conflict. Um, it, it sounds like it's, it would be a blurry line, but it's usually not. So some of the telltale, you know, you need to have like a you know, five or six of these, not just one, but some of the telltale signs you might be in high conflict include um, when you keep having the same conversation that's imaginary with the other person or side in your head, and it's just going round and round, right? When you lose sleep over the conflict, when you um, actually feel good when the other person or side suffers, even if that loss doesn't help you in any way, (laughs) Uh, that's not a good sign. When you um, discuss the conflict with someone who agrees with you and you leave the conversation feeling worse. So even though you agree, it doesn't make you feel better to talk about it because you're stuck. You're just going round and round, right? There's no sense of movement. That's one of the key distinctions, I should say, between good conflict and high conflict. And you can see it in the data, which is cool. Um, in good conflict, there are, you do experience anger and frustration and sadness, but then you have flashes of understanding and humor and curiosity, and then you're back to anger and frustration. So you have this galaxy of emotions as opposed to the same one or two emotions over and over and over. So that, that feeling of being stuck is more than a feeling. Like it's actually what is happening in the conflict is it's, it's not going anywhere because high conflict is the destination, right? Whereas good conflict, you're not sure how it's, how it's going to end. So more questions get asked in good conflict. Curiosity survives, right? Um, so those are some of the distinctions that, you know, to be careful of. Um, and I notice it now in myself. So I went into this because I just felt like I didn't know how to be useful as a journalist in the level of conflict we're in, particularly when like half the country didn't believe the places I was writing for were even trying to tell the truth. Um, so it just felt like curiosity was dead, you know, and that was like my whole... <laughs> currency such as it is right uh was curiosity and facts right so so i was just kind of you know casting about trying to understand conflict better and hanging out with people who study intractable conflict all over the world people who work in it differently than journalists you know like 
um, peace negotiators, gang violence interrupters, divorce lawyers, all these people understand conflict intimately, right? And understand it as a system, particularly at this level. Um, so it's like a different, there are different rules of engagement than there are for normal or healthy conflict. Um, so in doing that, I started to become a little more conscious of the times when I would start to slip into high conflict thinking, right? So anytime I start thinking about a complicated issue as having just two sides, like us and them, um, that's, that's a red flag, right? Because there's usually, especially if you take a big political issue, right? You cannot cleanly divide 300 million Americans into two categories. Like that's just not, that's a basic <laughs> yeah, it's not happening. physics problem. So always reminding myself of, okay, there's this, there's this group of people, this group of people, this third group of people, this fourth group of people, right? Like they, there is that complexity in the problem, but there's a real temptation to reduce it to something else. And, and I know you talk about that a lot, humiliation, winners and losers, different groups, Republicans and Democrats. And when there are countries that don't have the kind of two-party lines, um, there's less conflict and people can generally agree on things more. One of the things that I found super fascinating, because you mentioned the politician, is your Gary Friedman story. And I know you talk about this all the time on all your podcasts, but it's so fascinating because many times we know how to coach others or we can clearly observe things and and give people pointers. But when we're involved in the conflict, it's really hard to see it because we're inside the bottle. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that story a bit? And, And by the way, there's ton of amazing stories in Amanda's book. Curtis Toller is another great one, but, but Gary Freeman is one that I think is pretty, pretty. Uh, I don't want to say the word funny, but it's ironic in the sense that he's this brilliant uh, lawyer who um, in many cases, like married couples go to, um, to use only him instead of having uh, multiple attorneys. So I, I just found it fascinating in the sense that he was this guy who you think really would nail down and have self-awareness regarding conflict, but he didn't. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that story a bit? Yeah, I love this story. I learned so much from Gary. And I mean, it's to his credit that he was willing to go on the record and tell this story for the first time, because Gary is someone who is literally one of the world's leading experts on conflict. He's written books about it. He's taught negotiation at Harvard and Stanford. And like you mentioned, he's helped thousands of people mediate really hard conflicts like labor disputes, ugly custody battles, all kinds of human misery. And he's great. Like he's like this rock, you know, like he's, he's able to be curious and to ask different questions and, you know, just really get deep into conflict with an extraordinary grace. Right. So then a few years ago, a few of his neighbors encouraged him to run for office in his little town in Northern California, which you know, made so much sense because who better, right, to go into politics than someone like this, like a conflict guru who helped invent the field of conflict mediation uh, in the United States. So, you know, in this little town, the political, you know, scene had gotten a little toxic, pretty unpleasant, adversarial, much like the national scene. So people thought, you know, this would be this would be a great idea. And Gary thought this too. He figured it was a good way to give back. He'd never run for office, but, you know, couldn't he apply the same ideas 
from mediation to politics, right? That's what he'd done in the legal system, and it worked. Like, he took an extremely dysfunctional adversarial system and, and operated very differently. So it took him, as he puts it, about an eighth of a second to fall before he fell into high conflict uh, with his neighbors in this little town. Um, he's not proud of it, but he lost, like, two years of his peace of mind to this conflict. He was not the person he wanted to be. The conflict was over, you know, water rates and things that seem really, really kind of small to an outsider, but this is how conflict works. Like, it can be about anything because it stops being about the thing once it's high conflict and it starts being about conflict, um, winning and losing. So one of the lessons from this is that anyone is susceptible to high conflict, you know, all of us. And there are certain things that forces that tend to create high conflict that put us at risk for high conflict. And those forces were present for Gary, including humiliation, which you mentioned. So humiliation, Evelyn Lindner, who studies conflict and war, she calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions. And I think that's about right. It's like one of the most underappreciated drivers of all kinds of of really awful conflict from gang violence to domestic violence to, you know, international political standoffs. Often humiliation is lurking in there for, but, but people don't always call it that or even intend for it to be that. In Gary's case, you know, he came in as the savior, you know, he was in his seventies. He was this incredibly accomplished conflict expert um, he sort of expected, even subconsciously, to experience success and gratitude, right? And instead, he got a lot of pushback. And he did certain things, but also other people did certain things that um, made the situation pretty toxic. And so people would make fun of some of the things he tried to do. Um, he got called Napoleonic and, and told that he didn't listen. Things that really cut to the core of his identity, you know, as a person, as somebody who did conflict well. And anytime that happens, right, we don't, we typically respond the same way. There's a lot of really interesting research on this, that we experience social pain the same way we experience physical pain. It lights up the same parts of our brain. And interestingly, we experience it even when we are not the ones who are the victim of it, but someone in our group. So it's the same thing. It's collective pain. So anytime you experience exclusion or ostracism or worse, humiliation, we tend to react often with aggression. If we can't immediately re-ingratiate ourselves, we become aggressive. Um, and that's because it's, you know, it's, we're hardwired to need a group. So when we are suddenly ostracized or excluded, it's very painful. It's just, it is the same as physical pain. It's not, it's not different. In fact, in some ways, in some research, it's worse because you can, in your mind, revive the feeling of humiliation really easily. Whereas with physical pain, if you ever try to, like one time, you know, think of a time you were hurt, you know, five years ago, mm. right? If you try to revive the feeling, it's, it's kind of abstract, right? Like it's not real vivid, but humiliation, humans can revive really easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. If, if Gary had one thing to do over again, what would he have done? Well, that's a good question. I think he would say he would 
So humiliation is one of the drivers. He probably would have been more conscious of that, right? But that's, you know, you know, that's maybe third on the list. First on the list, another driver of high conflict in every case that I followed, you know, from politicians to activists to regular voters to gang members, one of the drivers of high conflict, in addition to humiliation, is the presence of conflict entrepreneurs. So these are people who exploit conflict for their own ends, uh, sometimes for profit, but more often for power or purpose or camaraderie, right? Um, and our system rewards conflict entrepreneurs right now, like social media, news media, politics. So it's not really their fault entirely, right? Um, we, and these are people that are just trying to stir things up. Like you might, you might watch them on the, the news and they have polarizing opinions, uh, like those kind of folks. Is yeah, they're playing the game. Like they're playing the game the yeah. way it is currently set up. So yeah, they're people or platforms that really delight in every twist and turn the conflict takes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, there's often, when you talk to divorce lawyers, they'll talk about in high conflict divorces, which about one in four divorces in the U.S. would be considered high conflict. There's often people on the sidelines who are fanning the flames, who are sort of uh, fomenting conflict. Maybe it's a sister or a lawyer often, right? Um, but people who, even if they don't realize the harm it's doing, they are really inflaming the conflict. Um, so the presence of conflict entrepreneurs is a common pattern. And one of the common patterns for people who shift out of high conflict into good conflict is that they distance themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their midst, if they can, right? So in Gary's case, he was relying on a seasoned political operative type person who, again, was playing the game the way it is designed to be played, particularly at the national level, um, yeah. and, and applying those same strategies, you know, talking about this little election as a war and you're going to kill the other side. <laughs> like it's like, it sounds absurd. In this small, in yeah, this in tiny small town, town yeah, it's like a volunteer <laughs> position, but he eventually figured this out and he still has a lot of respect and, and gratitude for this person who was trying to help him, but he started relying on his wife instead for political advice. His wife who was beloved in the community and saw even his adversaries as three-dimensional humans, right? Which is a very valuable way to stay out of high conflict. So she, she became his kind of go-to advisor. Um, and that's probably, I think, what he would have done from the beginning in retrospect. Got it. And I know the, the story of, of Curtis, who was a for, former gang member, Curtis Toller, uh, what I liked about that in the book is you kind of unpack and, and or you unpack if you are in this state of conflict and need to get out of it. And a gang member, gang leader is such a good example because that just seems really hard to get out of that situation. What are some tips that apply that you learned from Curtis that can apply to anyone really that's in a tough situation like that? Yeah, I mean, Curtis tells his story so powerfully. And actually, one of the things I'm most excited about with the book, it, just as a side note, with the audiobook, we were able to include some excerpts of the actual people talking for themselves instead of my voice. Oh, that's great. So Curtis yeah. is in there. He's got a great voice and, and he tells his story really well. But uh, yeah, Curtis joined his first gang at the age of nine on the south side of Chicago. Um, he got into high conflict 
for the same reason a lot of us do, you know, trying to belong, trying to make sense of a wor- the world, trying to get a sense of control where you have none. Um, and he rose through the ranks of his particular organization, becoming a leader at a very young age. And along the way, one of his childhood heroes, a basketball star in Chicago, was murdered in high school. And the person who did the shooting was a member of a rival gang, the Gangster Disciples. And in Curtis's mind, this really kind of sealed the high conflict, right? It became a vendetta with this rival organization that lasted for years. It was a very painful experience for all of Chicago to lose this young man in such a violent way. Uh, He was a basketball star and had a, a huge future ahead of him. But the way that Curtis made sense of that, which was impossible to make sense of because it doesn't make sense, is to look at it through this us versus them lens, right? Anyway, many things happened, and eventually he ends up meeting the person who killed his childhood hero, uh, and they now work together. But if you talk to Curtis now about what drove him, how he got out of high conflict, and how he helps other people out of high conflict today, because he works with an organization called Chicago Cred, helping young men and women get out of high conflict more quickly than he did, is he talks a lot about conflict entrepreneurs, actually, because he was one, you know? I mean, he, he was a conflict entrepreneur. Right. And he, yeah. he talks really powerfully about what motivated him, because part of what we have to understand, right, is, is what is motivating conflict entrepreneurs. And one of the things that motivated him, he now realizes, was his own internal conflict. He had witnessed so much violence, especially against his mother from abusive partners, that he had never been able to deal with, that that internal conflict tends to spill out, right? It becomes an external conflict. And so it wasn't until he was able and willing to access trauma counseling that he could deal with some of, like recognize what was happening internally and therefore extract himself from some of the other conflicts that he didn't want to be in anymore. And what he tells young men today is, look, until you deal with that internal conflict, this external conflict is going to keep happening. So the inner fight and the outer fight are really connected in ways that we don't often talk about. Is some of that too just hope? Like meaning you can want to, to change, but maybe you don't see a clear path to change. Totally. I mean, I often think about you know, I wonder how many people there are who would like to get out of high conflict, whether right. it's gang conflict or other things. And I think it's millions of people. I mean, if you talk to people who are in gang conflict in Chicago today, it is miserable. Like, they want out. And interestingly, I had a chance to talk with a group, a bipartisan group of uh, Congress, members of Congress a couple of weeks ago, and it's, they sound the same. Like, they're miserable. They want out. Yeah. They hate it. <laughs> And they're stuck, right? They're stuck in in high conflict. Um, So yeah, often there's a sense that you have no options um, or that there's only two options and they're both terrible. So that's another red flag to look for. Whenever you feel in life like there's only two options and they're both terrible, you're probably missing something. And that's the way that high conflict kind of narrows our our vision, right? Um, And it's important to find ways to get that peripheral vision back. 
when you were speaking to Congress, did you make any um, inroads with with that, or was there a positive outcome at the end of it? Do you think there's going to be change because yeah, I of mean, it? And what did you learn from that? On the one hand, it feels impossible. It's like someone calling you from a crack house and asking you how they could live a healthier <laughs> lifestyle. You know, you're like, well, yeah. uh, first you have to move out. You know, uh, yeah. So they are trapped by a system that is much bigger than any of us, right? That is adversarial, that is us versus them, that is fueling high conflict. It's a, it's a conflict industrial system, right? Millions and millions of dollars get made off this system, politically and in journalism and other things. So uh, on the one hand, it feels impossible, and that's how they feel, right? On the other hand, there's like basic stuff that they could be doing that like, you would do in any middle school to prevent violent conflict that doesn't happen in Congress, right? So I'm <laughs> right. really torn. Like on the one hand, oh my gosh, this feels insurmountable. On the other hand, it's like, you know, maybe you guys could have lunch together once in seven years. Do you know what I'm saying? Like basic things yeah. that we know help interrupt conflict. And they, and again, they want to do this. I mean, there's, so there's this committee called the Select Committee on Modernization which is bipartisan. And to their credit, you know, these, these members of Congress are trying to change the way that place works, and it's not easy to do. In, speaking of having lunch together, I know you, you mentioned uh, and, and you talk about ratios, and especially now because we're in Zoom land and Slack world and mm. everything is virtual, and we're missing these opportunities, as you, as you say eloquently, of even being able to have like positive interactions with someone and saying hi and smiling. And I completely feel that like my, my company has been virtual since the beginning of the pandemic. I don't see us going back really ever to what it was, which is sad in a way it's, it is sad. How do you balance that now? How do you create this in a virtual world where you can have those, Hey, let's go out to lunch. If you're talking now we're hiring remote employees across the country and doing a lot of things like that. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I feel your pain. This is, um, this is a recipe for disaster. Like, we have got to see each other in person. And, I, and you can't rush it, and you got to do it safely, and you can't force it, right? So it's tricky. You, you know, and it doesn't have to be every day, right? But we know from decades and decades of research that those fleeting encounters or even better, intense encounters that are outside of the conflict, that are positive, are literally insurance for your sanity and productivity. Uh, if you want to succeed as an organization, as a family, as a country, as a neighborhood, you have to have those encounters and you have to have far more positive than negative so that when conflict arises, which it will, you can keep it productive. You can use it to get better right? Which is, which is what we, we all need. Um, so in the research, the uh, psychologists Julie and John Gottman, who study marital conflict, have found that couples who are resilient in conflict have about a five to one ratio. They call this the magic ratio uh, between positive and negative encounters, right? And so that's a lot. <laughs> in Peter Coleman's research at Columbia University, looking at uh, political conflict between strangers, it was more like three to one. Um, so somewhere between three and five, I think, is, is what we should shoot for. And, and you can have some of that on Zoom, but I think it's a very thin experience. Um, so I think uh, whether you know, you're doing it once a week or once a month, 
there have to be ways for humans to, to come together in person. And there are certain conditions to make that more positive and useful than it might otherwise be, as opposed to like randomly waiting for organic conversations by the coffee maker. Um, but the, it's super important. Yeah, I, I totally seal that, see that. I feel it. And it's, you know, we do things like give each other tacos, but everything's virtual, you know, unless there's virtual reality and you could, <laughs> you could feel like you're actually walking next, next to someone. Zoom came out with this immersive uh, view now where you feel like you're in this conference room and I'm like, well, that was a year too late, but yeah. still it's just kind of <laughs> like, it's kind of like, okay, now it looks like we're cartoons, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a tough situation, but you're right. And, and just when you do, cause things are opening back up a bit, but unfortunately you now kind of the, 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 the gates are open, right? Everyone is used to working a certain way and it's going to be hard to get them back to what it was. I don't, I don't see a clear path to that even in the next year. Yeah. And maybe what it was isn't the right goal, right? I mean, we know like there's certain conditions that lead to those encounters being more kind of um, vivid and productive. So maybe if it's a hybrid situation, you're just more thoughtful about those encounters. So we know, for example, that you want people to, um, first of all, there should be food, speaking of tacos, and I mean the real kind. Yeah, uh, yeah. There should be food. That's like a basic, it's nice if there's music. Like there's certain things that are just like ancient for humans, right? These are, these yeah. are primal things. And then also, it's good to be working on a common problem together, and maybe outside of a, the normal work problem, right? Like whether you're yeah. trying to build a house for Habitat for Humanity or something that's outside, but you're, you kind of have a common identity in that experience. Um, we know, I was you know, just talking to Adam Grant, the organizational psychologist who was saying that it's especially important for onboarding new employees. Like don't skip this uh, in person. And the intensity of those bonding experiences really matters, right? So that's going to be different depending on the organization. You know, for some, a, a cornhole match could be super intense. For others, you know, it might be uh, going deep sea fishing or, uh, you know, going bowling. I don't know. But this, this stuff, which I used to kind of make fun of, I, you know, I came up as a like alternative journalist and I was, you know, I didn't, I thought that birthday cakes in the office kitchen were just super contrived affairs. And, and now I like, I'll tell you what, I'm going. <laughs> so, yeah. Like I, I actually really see the value and I see it not just in conflict, but for any kind of crisis or productivity to happen. Have you done any research on mergers and acquisitions in terms of groups? And what I mean by that is, so my, my companies were, were acquired and we wanted to just be independent and we wanted to kind of have our own culture. And then the parent company was kind of this other group and, and it, w- was, it was never like a negative thing. It was just more of like, let's just keep our, our identity. But after reading your book, I, I now look back at that, the, you know, the period right after the acquisition and wonder if it would have been better if we were just like, let's just merge everyone together as one, as one team, because what happens is after, and over time, you, you kind of view each other as, as not competitors in a way, but like, it is definitely different than just one big happy family. Yes, totally. 
And it's so just tricky, just wondering if you've done right? anything with that. Well, it's yeah. tricky because you don't want to lose, if you have a high-functioning team culture, you don't want to lose that. I mean, that's the whole reason they bought you, right? Um, and at the same time, yes, anytime you divide humans into binary groups, especially if there's just two and they're not fluid, bad things will eventually happen. Or at least good things will not happen. <laughs> so we used to work on this problem at Time Magazine. So we would, you know, every time there was a big disaster, like a hurricane, you know, we'd send people down. And CNN, owned by the same company, would send people down from the same city, right? It's very expensive <laughs> to do this, you know? And, uh, and yet they're TV and we're print. And, and we would always try to come up with ways to work together so, because they had the vehicles that could go into high water and we didn't. And, you know, we had, anyway, it never worked. It never worked because there was yeah. no fluidity normally between these groups, right? So, you, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to give up any identity, but if you look at the research, there has to be movement. So if you, you know, you trade places for a week or two weeks or you're like, you're not always in the same. So then you have a lot more, respect and empathy for the other group because you've sort of been there um, and it doesn't feel as, but this is a hard problem. Yeah, it's a hard one. I mean, if, if you think about any company getting acquired, that's the first thing. Uh, and I see this amongst my peers too. It's like, uh, you know, we're going to keep our independence. And now I'm like, just rethinking it. I'm like, you know what? Just pull off the bandaid. We're all one. Let's get together. Let's solve these problems. Let's, let's create synergies and uh, and just have this kind of joint task force to make sure that we're not losing momentum. Yeah, uh, because, so, you know, yeah. if we think about it, I often find it's helpful to think of the marriage analogy, especially with political conflict, but any kind of conflict. Like if you think about if you're going to marry someone and you're going into it like, but I'm just going to keep my independence, like just so you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, understandable, yeah, exactly. right? Like you do want some yeah. boundaries. Um, you don't yeah. want to lose yourself. On the other hand, you're trying to create something new. Right, something yeah, something great. different than the yeah. two independent entities. So yeah, that's that's a great analogy. Um, the uh, if you are trying to give constructive criticism that could be viewed as uh, a conflict to someone, what what are tips that you've seen work in terms of? Being able to create conflict, but it's really productive conflict. Is there something that's obvious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it always comes back to like really advanced listening, which I wish it was a, I wish it were not such a like, you know, woo woo word. But when I say listening, I mean something more than what most of us do. So it's like you have to start with asking different questions of the other person or side and really listening to their answers and then proving with your words, not with your gestures, but with your words that you heard them and you're trying to understand them, right? It's sort of like there's research on motivational interviewing that's really powerful in the research by Guy Itchikoff on listening. When people feel heard, amazing things happen. They work harder. They will follow their doctor's orders. Uh, they will, even as they disagree, right? So even if there is conflict and not everybody's on the same page, as long as people also feel heard, it can be productive. So it sounds counterintuitive because I think you're asking me, like, what if you have to bring something that could create conflict to someone? How do you keep it good? And I'm saying, listen to them. <laughs> so it sounds a little bit like yeah. a order of operations. Like, how do you... so? So, but it, you know, it's sort of like bringing up the subject and asking them what they think and really listening, right? 
and then saying what you think and then asking them what they heard. It's this iterative process that isn't as painful or slow as it sounds, but um, the tactic that I talk about in the book is called looping for understanding, which actually Gary Friedman trained me on and has trained thousands of people on. But it's basically you listen for what seems most important to that person. So you're trying to get at what's, you know, where's their internal conflict? What are they torn about? Like, what are they worried about? And then you paraphrase it in the most elegant language you can muster, play it back to them. And then, this is the part I used to always forget, is you have to check to see if you got it right with genuine curiosity, right? So you have to be like, is that right? Um, And you get this kind of real momentum going where they're like, yeah, 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 that's exactly right. And then they will listen to you, right? So it's like a game of chicken, like who's going to listen first? So I would recommend listening first. Yeah, you had a great story about bus driver Dan as well uh, to de-escalate the situation where people are trying to vandalize the bus and and he's just asking questions, you know, and yeah. saying why are you do, you know why are you doing this? And <laughs> yeah, he's, he has I a formula that's... for for public conflict so that suddenly erupts. Yeah. Honest question, honest question, honest question, choice. <laughs> that's his formula. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I think about it a lot. I know we have to wrap in a second here. Um, I wanted to get to the smartest kids in the world, but I know that's that's a little bit off topic. So maybe I could have you on again. But my last question would be: Is having now having published this book, if there was another chapter in it of things that you've learned, what would you add to it? Mm. Yeah, that's always the way, right? Is like you spend four years scouring the planet for the best stories you can tell. And then you publish the book and the stories come to you, you know? And so that's happened a lot. Like I've got a lot of people who have reached out to me with just incredible stories of not just conflict they're in, but ways that they have extracted themselves out of high conflict into good conflict. Um, So I think probably, you know, and I'm definitely going to, you know, add things as I always do for the paperback version, but I think, One of the things that maybe I didn't, uh, I could explain better and especially tell stories around is, is the way that good conflict is actually addictive. (laughs) So this is, this is sort of surprising to people, but all over the world, once people experience good conflict, they want more. Like it is this kind of transcendent feeling of being able to speak your truth and be curious and surprised like to show up as the person you want to be in the heat of conflict. And once you experience it, it's like a, there's like a euphoria. I can't, it's hard to explain. It sounds crazy. Right. But I have, I have now experienced it and seen it enough that I feel like it's an important point to drive home because otherwise it feels impossible. But I said this to the members of Congress. I'm like, look, if you can get just like five minutes of good conflict, you'll find people want 10 more. Right. Yeah. Is, is some of that like radical transparency, like what Ray Dalio practices is, is that along the same lines or is it different? That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, I guess part of it is because it's so refreshing, right? Like, and there's, now you have to set up the conditions. You can't, you can't walk into like on the floor of the Senate and suddenly try to have good conflict. <laughs> right. yeah. That's not what it's yeah. set up for. Right. Um, so you have to get everyone involved or most of them to agree to some ground rules, you know, and come up with them together. So you can't just do it overnight. But once the conditions are in place where people can kind of be themselves and even reveal 
internal dissonance that they feel, which everyone does, then that opens up other people. So yeah, there is a, a sense of transparency that's a vulnerability, right? Um, so you need, you need to take it in baby steps. Um, but once you can get a little bit of vulnerability, you'll find the other side or person more, usually more open to being vulnerable in the right conditions. And then there's just, you know, there's something amazing about being surprised about a conflict that had just felt so heavy and hopeless, right? Even as you continue to disagree about a lot of important things. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Amanda, thank you so much for your time today. Again, highly recommend High Conflict, the smartest kids in the world, and uh, the unthinkable. How else can people get, get a hold of you? Your website? Yeah, you can email me. Um, I'm at, my website is amandaripley.com, and I'm on Twitter at Amanda Ripley and on Instagram. The whole, the whole racket. And <laughs> lots of ways. Yeah. I'd love to hear from people with their, their own thoughts about what works to make conflict. Are you working good. on a... Are you already working on another book? No, I'm working on some magazine projects, which is sort of my normal routine is I, I do a bunch of magazine projects and then eventually another book. Once I run into a wall that I can't, <laughs> I you can't just, see you just, you just move uh, to various topics that are similar and linked together? You or know, I actually, further explore the conflict? I actually th- um, used to think of myself as a generalist and I still do. It seemed like the things I wrote about had nothing in common, but now I've sort of finally realized that I usually, what I get obsessed with are like really wicked problems that I can't, I can't figure out personally or professionally. And then I find people who have been to the other side in some way. And I write about them, you know, whether it's for the first book, when people who have survived disasters, things they want you to know, or for the second book, kids who have lived in countries with much higher performing education system. Like what's that like compared to their high school back in Oklahoma or you yeah. know, California. And then in this book with high conflict, it was people who have been through the darkness of high conflict and gotten into good conflict. You know, what do they know that they want the rest of us to know? So that's kind of my jam is like just trying to follow regular people who've been have been to the other side and back. Yeah, uh, definitely from the smartest kids in the world, just opened my eyes more to even not only just reading to my kids, but asking them questions about what I read and, and having them think through some, some problems. So I thought that was good. Again, a little bit off topic for this conversation. Maybe we could explore it again. Yeah, I'd love that. I know you got to go though. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much, Amanda. Have a great day and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Joe. Good to see you. Take care. There are so many times I find myself in tough conversations that are truly frustrating, both in my professional and personal life, because I just know the conversation isn't getting anywhere. I'm so grateful to my guest, Amanda Ripley. You were incredible. My biggest takeaway is to make sure my responses reflect ideas, truly listening and hearing what people have to say, which is promoting good conflict. So this week, go into your conversations with an open mind in a place of respect And when in doubt, be like bus driver Dan and ask de-escalating questions. Until next week, remember, you, me, we are not almost there.